Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria. Glad you're along with me. I know some of you have been saying, Anita, where's your podcast? I know I've not recorded as many starting this fall, but I am getting back into it. You know what? I took some vacation. Shock, right? I took some vacation and it was great. And I'm back in the saddle again, and you're going to be awfully glad you downloaded the podcast today. Uh, today, I'm talking with Amy F. Davis Abdallah. And she has written Meaning in the Moment, which is published by Brazos Press. Uh, I have several favorite publishers. Brazos is one of them. Um, so I'm excited to have Amy on the podcast. The subtitle is How Rituals Help Us Move Through Joy, Pain, and Everything in Between. If you're uh, listening, or maybe I should say if you're alive and breathing, then you've had joy and you've had pain, and by golly, you've had everything in between. So I know that to be true. Let me just, um, I was going to introduce Amy, but you know what? I love having people introduce themselves because sometimes they say something different than what's in the, the written bio. So Amy, let me first welcome you to Faith Conversations. And then why don't you introduce yourself and say the things you'd like to say about yourself? Sure. Oh, I wasn't quite ready for this, but <laughs> but I'll say the things I like to say right now. Uh, I have worked as a professor for a long period of time, but I like to say that I work as a professor, not I am a professor, because my my life is so much broader than that. I am a ritual creator. That's kind of my passion. I love my PhDs in liturgical studies. So I love worship and I love the history of Christian worship and trying to understand why we do what we do and how it affects us and forms us. I am married. I have a husband, so I'm a wife and I have two little boys and I am an adventure seeker. I love to do, to be outdoors and to seek adventure, but I also find, and this is something I'm realizing, even as we're talking right now, Anita, that I also find that creating rituals is like an adventure for me and figuring Ooh. out how we go in our journey of life and how different rituals can help punctuate that journey, but also helping people process the, the joys, the pains, everything in between in a manner that kind of brings it from the inside out and helps them be formed in the, in the likeness of Christ and move forward. So I love hearing you say that. It's so interesting. Um, Amy and I had a conversation before the conversation, you know, you, um, I get the joy of talking with guests before I hit the record button. And I, some of that came out in our conversation before the, this conversation. And so um, I'm very curious to know um, why you chose your PhD on the topic of um, ritual and liturgy. And yeah, I mean, wh where did this uh, interest come from? <laughs> I grew up with none. Uh, at least, at least my church thought there was none. So I didn't grow up with, um, with an understanding that ritual is good and ritual is formative. And I didn't grow up with, um, same. with, I'll just throw in right? same. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. And, and yet I realized as I, as I came into adulthood that I wanted markers and, and I do think that we actually have rituals in our free churches that say, oh, we don't have any rituals. I'm like, no, actually you do the same thing. When you come together corporately every Sunday, you taught me to do a quiet time in the morning and to pray via acts, ACTS, like these are, I'm supposed to do adoration, confession, Thanksgiving, and then supplication. You've taught me those rituals. Yes, they're extemporaneous, um, but I find that written liturgy is so rich and deeply theological that, that I've, I've missed that. You know, I've, I study theology. I teach theology. I teach, I teach biblical studies as well. And I teach practical theology and worship. And and it was just like, hey, I don't have any of this. I needed to get a PhD because I already had a job teaching. They hired me with just a master's of divinity. And I that's what I wanted to study. I, I, I'm like, hey, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I really, really didn't. And then I was able to do my dissertation on not just liturgical studies, but the neighboring area of ritual studies. And I find bringing the understanding of ritual and the understanding of liturgical studies and theology together really, really refreshing and growth forming. It's so interesting. I, you said you didn't grow up with any of this and I said the same. However, in my elementary school years and into middle school, I grew up in a com- very heavily populated Jewish area outside Philadelphia. And I went to so many bar, mis- bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs in my, um, those years, you know, 12, 13, right. In that age range. Um, and I just thought, I want one of these. Wow, this is so interesting. I didn't even fully grasp what it was I was going to. I probably, as a child of that age and era, I just wanted a party. I was loving that. Uh, but wow, I took all kinds of gifts for everyone else, and I probably just wanted some gifts sent back my way. I don't know. But uh, you know, later on, as I looked back, um, and actually, do you know James Martin, Father James Martin? Oh, I love him. Yes, I love him too. He grew up in the exact same town that I did. And he said the same thing. He goes, yep, surrounded by Jewish kids. And I became a Catholic priest, (laughs) 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 which I love. Um, And same thing for him. You know, he grew up going to all these bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. And, um, but I didn't think anything of it. And no one around me, parents or any other adults really around me talked about ritual and even gave me a deeper meaning on what that was about, what I was attending. And I took it in as best I could at that age and um, probably started thinking about it a little bit later in life when I jumped ship from the Baptist church, you know, to um, a more, it wasn't Presbyterian, but the all the pastors, it was a non-denominational, but all the pastors had that background. And so there was, there really was, it was a liturgical church. Eventually they started a contemporary service, but still my love and pull was to that liturgical um, aspect. Uh, uh, I mean, there's liturgy in all services, as you, you know, just talked about, but the more formal kind of liturgy, it was something I hadn't experienced. The the quiet, the um, the, the Apostles' Creed, the you know the creeds, whatever, all of these elements. You know what I'm talking about. And I felt my heart come alive, and then I started to engage and learn about spiritual practices. So when you talked about uh, rituals, that what's exciting to you is forming um, new rituals, right? You know, I, I finally woke up to the fact that almost anything can be a spiritual practice as well. It's just um, maybe putting some 
um, language around it and uh, et cetera. So that's where my heart kind of lights up. But I have a feeling what you're talking about has a real pull to, for me as well. So let me let you get back to your story, which is you grew up with none. I grew and, up with none, but I do want to say something about yeah. your fascination with bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, bat mitzvah. I don't think it was only about getting getting gifts because you could just have a you could just have a birthday party and you oh, could true. get a whole bunch of gifts. Now, true, it's a much bigger birthday party, but some people have sweet sixteens that are the same, and that's 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 less Jewish. True. But what what's really interesting about ritual is I think you also perceived the honor yes. of that person uh, in Christian society. We don't really, I mean, when, when I was growing up and I think we're, we're relatively close to the same age, the only rite of passage that we went forward to within Christianity was like, I was going to get married and like, I'm going to realize my identity, um, being a wife and being a mother. Now I became fascinated with rites of passage because I did not have that. And I'm like, I'm still an adult, like church. Can you see I'm still an adult? I have a career. How do I understand myself as a Christian woman outside of that? And what I think is really interesting about ritual is that you can't point to whatever it was that you were really fascinated with the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah, because ritual acts below the level of conscious awareness. Like, it's just like you're perceiving something and you know that when these people prepare, something's going on, but, but you can't really pinpoint it. I was also really drawn to, and this plays into what you're just saying, um, hearing my uh, fellow students talk about going to Hebrew school and having to learn and recite and say certain things at their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. And that, I was so um, kind of enraptured with that too. And I thought, where's that for me? I, I did think that. And it's interesting. Um, I, I've, do you know, Amy Jill Levine, you know, that, uh, yeah. name mm -hmm. I've talked with her on the podcast before, and she tells the story or somewhere I've heard her tell this, that she, all of her friends were Catholic and she, she just really wanted, um, to have the first communion. That was so interesting to her. And, and, and I wonder if it's some of the same stuff, you know, this we're drawn, um, subconsciously even there's something in us that is drawn to ritual um you would say i hear see you nodding you're agreeing with that yeah, yeah. and i mean the ritual theorists would say hey there's a magic there's this magic that happens uh, i don't believe in magic i mean but i do believe that there's um there's something mysterious that happens in ritual and i think that in our christian rituals i like to i like to use ritual instead of worship because it situates what we do in the broader scheme of what humans have always done and we can learn from one another but you know we think about the mystery of the Godhead, like we said, our Christian faith is formed on utter mystery. Like it's formed on Trinitarian mystery. It's formed on Christological mystery. Like both of those are logically incoherent really. And, and yet there's like, there's this, there's this mysterious thing that happens in our rituals that, that draws us to them when they're done well. And they're not well, always done well. Totally. But... Well, yes. Or done uh, to your point, done at all. That mis mm -hmm. mystery part was, I think, kind of tossed away in my free Baptist upbringing, you know, just mm -hmm. uh, that's too scary. That Mr. God is mystery. It's a little too scary. Let's actually figure God out and we'll tell you about God, you know? And so that, that's what kind of drew me back that mystery and um, totally different than what I was taught really initially. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, let's get in. All right. So yes, you do. 
your PhD and and then you decide to write a book, meaning in the moment. And is that because people just don't know? We just don't know how rituals can help us. That's what you're saying, really. Yeah. And I mean, the primary audience of the book is, is, is Christian, it's Brazos Press. And so, so yeah. And I think that we miss opportunities all the time. Leaders in the church miss pastoral opportunities by not ritualizing things like miscarriage. So yes. people who experience terrible pain in miscarriage, both physical and psychological and emotional and everything, right? They go to a Facebook group uh, maybe not so much Facebook, maybe it's an Instagram group now. I don't know. Um, uh, but yeah. they go somewhere else yeah. to find a ritual that's going to help them because the church isn't offering it. You yes. know, people who experience great joy and, and all of this, we we miss out on it because there's there's this power in ritual. And God, I mean, we're scared of it because, oh my gosh, it's the seances and the witches. The reason that they do rituals and the reason that they're gang initiations is because there's power here. And so they take it for evil. Why don't we take it for good? Like God can bring about and throughout the history of like what we read about in scripture, Hebrew Bible, New Testament, God uses ritual to draw people to God's self, you know? So, so why don't, why, like we're missing it. Hello. And yes, some ritual has been done deadly. Like it's been done as if it's dead, but that's not the way it has to be just because right. you once experienced, experienced it that way. We are living. And if we are living it by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Trinitarian God, then we're able to offer life through ritual and we miss out on it all the time. Oh, I say this sometimes on the podcast. I want to just press pause right now and just sit and think for a little bit, but I can't. So we'll keep on talking <laughs> later. I can, I can stop and think, well, one of the, a couple of things, one, I love that, um, David O. Taylor wrote, um, the forward to your book. I, uh, what a marvelous writer himself and lovely person, but his story was so interesting to me that he, what he was getting ready to turn 30 and feeling mm -hmm. like, uh, and I'm feeling this cause my son is 30. When you said you think we might be near the same age, I don't think so, <laughs> <laughs> but I really took that as a compliment, Amy. <laughs> anyway, he's, my son's going to turn 31 next month, but, um, he and but David said, uh, you know, he wanted something to kind of a passage, a rite of passage. I guess that's that's a, maybe another phrase um, to move him into adulthood, or I think that's what he was saying. Yeah. And how did you even connect with him to find out that he had this story to like write the intro here to your book to the forward? When I invited him to write the forward, I had no idea. <laughs> I literally, so I had, I had engaged, like we run, we run in similar circles. Uh, and so I had engaged a, a bunch of several people, not a bunch, like eight to 10 is what they, what they want you to do. I engaged eight to 10 people to write endorsements. And then I, and then I asked my publisher, I'm like, should I have a forward writer? And they said, they said, well, you don't need to have a forward writer, but if you really want to, he's going to be your best bet. And then I asked him to do it with a bit of trepidation because I know forwards don't always help books. And, and he wrote, he wrote back to me, I'm trying to figure out something that's going to help you. And then I read his forward and I about fell over. Yeah. I, 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 I'm like, I had no idea our thoughts and our, our work was so, um, so interconnected. And I'm so grateful to, to him for writing the forward. It's beautifully written, yeah. but it deeply connects with what I was trying to say. Right. And also what I try to offer to women in a rite of passage that I do called woman. 
which uh, can we, okay. I want to say a couple of th- quick things here. So you have, there are three parts of the book. Why do we ritualize? How do we ritualize? What do we ritualize? As I start, I just totally teared up as I started reading about woman. It's not where I came from. I would boy, would I have loved something like that. I'm going to, I'm thinking more about this now. Uh, Uh, on a lot of levels for a lot of reasons, but would you talk about what you did, how it came to be or what you do, maybe current tense. um, I think women especially would really appreciate hearing this. Well, I, like I stated earlier, I wanted a rite of passage that was going to help me understand my own identity as a Christian woman who was not married, who was not a wife and not a mother. And while I hoped for that, I really did. Like, that's all I wanted. I mean, I don't mean to say it's all I wanted, but it was the mo- the big thing I wanted the most. Um, and, and that was not coming for me. I got married when I was 39. And I know for some of us, that's very young and not all of us do get married. And so I'm, I'm in this process of, of like this, what felt liminal, like I'm in between, I'm no longer a kid and people, especially in the church, didn't know how to treat me until I moved to a metropolitan area where there were more people like me. But, but in my church in the middle of Pennsylvania, they're like, you're not a college student and you're not married. I don't, I don't know where to put you. Totally reminds me of Carolyn Custis James. Do you know, you know, who married later, didn't have a fit, you know, because the church has one template or the church has one template. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's not, it's not a bad thing. I mean, I think marriage and family is wonderful and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And yet Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. Like, how do we also honor? And I mean, I can talk about the history of Christianity, but let's talk about women. Um, the, so basically I was going through this and I, I tell this story in, I think in my, um, I, my other book, it's called the book of womanhood. And I wrote it to accompany this rite of passage that I do. And so I, I, I was in my PhD program. My first topic was rejected and it was horrible and I was so sad. And then my, my advisor said, just think through anything that you've done in the last, in the last five years of being in the program that still is interesting to you. And so what was still interesting to me is trying to understand rites of passage for women because I never had one. And so, and I felt like I was floundering. I remember when I, I was 29 years old, when I first taught my first college class and there I am, I'm standing in front of them. I'd been told by the church, Hey, you're a college student. I wanted to be one of them, but I knew that if I tried to be one of them, I would do an injustice to them mm. and I would do an injustice to myself. Mm-hmm. So I needed to stop calling myself a girl. I needed to stop thinking about myself as, as a college kid, but start thinking about myself as a woman. And so that process kind of continued. And so I did a dissertation. I looked at rites of passage for both men and women. So I looked at it through ritual theory. And then I also found written rituals that were done primarily for African-American groups um, in, in English. And so they're coming from some cultural background where there was a rite of passage. And I found in my dissertation, now it's the 350 pages. I don't even think my mom made it through it. Uh, (laughs) And so there were like five, maybe eight pages. It's like, here's practical. If Uh I were to ever do a rite of passage, this is practical. And my friends said, Amy, you're going to do this. And I said, I'm too scared. And so we did it. We started in 2011. We're looking at a framework. It's not, hey, Come fit this box because that's what I was given. I'm like, I don't fit your box. Right. Um, I don't fit the box of wife and mother. I don't, I don't, I don't fit the box and bigger boxes, not bigger boxes, more, more constraining boxes for me and my personality. I don't fit the box, but um, we are on a journey. 
we use a framework of the journey of womanhood and we say you're created to have a relationship with God, with yourself, with others, and with creation. Mm. Church is good at God and others. Like you've always got this vertical and horizontal understanding, but how do you understand yourself so that you can love others? And how do you have relationship with creation? And so we, friends of mine and I, we created this rite of passage that we started with 10 students and um, it was four meetings. We had a ritualized initiation, a ritualized crossing over ceremony where they had a presentation and a symbol that they were given, which was a necklace that um, that said, hey, you're a woman, you did this presentation, you said this is what woman means to you. And over 10 years, it became, it became eight meetings. Mm. It's now a video curriculum that's being piloted in a church in Michigan um, oh, that's available cool. to churches and universities wherever. It's in English right now, so, wow. so primarily for English-speaking populations. How would people and, uh, that would want to get a hold of that, how would they do that? I'll make sure that's uh, in the show notes, but tell us now and I'll write it down. Yeah, so you just just go to amydavisa.com. So it's amydavisa.com. And there's a woman rite of passage page on my website. Great. And you can contact me through there. But on that woman rite of passage page, there are two videos. Actually, I believe more than two uh, that, that, will, that will show you and give you a glimpse of who we are, our core values, what we do, and, and what we want to offer to the world. Because our identity is not in a role, like whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. If you, if you say, okay, my identity is in this role, what happens when you lose that role? What happens through whatever circumstances you're no longer a wife? What happens through whatever circumstances you're a mother in a different way because your kids are grown? Like what, what happens? It's not about a role. God has given us an identity. God has sought to give us, help us understand ourselves as people created in the image of God and how do we live that out? And basically what woman does is it creates an opportunity to just talk about it. And so we talk about it, there are ritual elements to it. And the women say that Amy, something happened in the air. Like this is my, this is the quote that I love where someone came out to me and others agreed something happened in the air, Amy, at that crossing over ceremony, when you put that necklace on me. So it's pointing to ritual acts below the level of conscious awareness. She's like, I was a different person the next morning when I walked into my job and I would not be in this other job where I am today, except that I, that I did woman. And so these women came back to do the video curriculum so that they could help empower other women to understand who they are so that they can, they can faithfully live out who they are in the world. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I I am just um, blown away by that. I uh, can't wait to kind of dig into that and look at that further. <laughs> so let's, what What are some other ritualized, what are some other experiences that we just haven't thought about that you talk about that we maybe need to? And I think one of the things I appreciate, you say not everyone feels drawn to this. Not everyone with the same experience feels drawn to ritualize their experience, but but sometimes it's just not talked about, period. And someone might, in fact, do that if they had the thought or had someone um, invite them into that kind of experience. What are some other ones uh, like that? I mean, you mentioned miscarriages before, which I, wow, that's, I really appreciated that you mentioned that. That's that unspoken thing that so many suffer with in silence alone if they don't reach out and find their own kind of group. But what are some other ones? 
So, I mean, there, there are just so many and it's different for everyone. I think when we're experiencing an overwhelming, overwhelming feelings that we are either completely denying and pushing down like the beach ball under the waves that comes up and hits us in the face yes. Yes. or, or where we're just, we're just weeping every day. Um, when we're experiencing something that's overwhelming to us, I think we do have to ask the question, how can I ritualize this even? And wow. it's often negative, but what about the joy? Like when it's just like, I need to express this joy. I mean, a wedding is a ritual that we already do. We already have funerals, but how do we look at other other experiences in our lives. Um, the miscarriage ritual is in the last part of the book. I say, what do we ritualize? And so I look at ends, beginnings, and middles. We start with ends. It's in, it's in the ends because like, this is one of the ends. Another end that I suggest we ritualize is divorce. Uh, whether or not, uh, I don't think ritualizing divorce means we say, Hey, divorce is great. I can't wait till you do it. Exactly. Uh, right. Of course. I not. think the church has a tenuous relationship with divorce, but we need to know that 50% of our society to statistically 50% of married people do get divorced. And some of our married people were divorced. And so how do we pastor them? <clears throat> because they get, if they're Christian, they get married in a church and by a minister and they get divorced in the courtroom. Like, how do they understand that human heart is, hearts are still hard? How do we reconcile them to God and ritually say, hey, there are things you need to leave behind about this divorce, but there are things that are growth and that are good. And maybe they're kids that you are still taking with you. Let's name that. So what rituals do for us is they take what kind of what's inside and they name what we're experiencing. We're good at beginnings. Like we like to ritualize beginnings. I say in my beginnings, my beginnings chapter, but there's a couple things we miss. We miss that it's actually hard. Um, so our, the way we ritualize them, I think needs to be, needs to be um, changed a little bit that recognizes the challenges of that. But I think a, the liminal space is by far the most ignored, the middles, the middles of our lives. Um, we were talking earlier that the school that I was working for just closed. So mm -hmm. I'm in a period of middle. I am no longer employed. So in many senses, I'm no longer who I was, even though I say hey, I have worked as a professor for a long time. I think I can still grab onto that. It was 21 years, but I'm no longer yeah. who I was. I'm not yet who I will be. Middle spaces are very, very challenging. Um, we're all in the middle between birth and death. But what about our people who have chronic illness? You know, I think if you're from a church that believes in physical healing, you're good at like, oh, let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. But what do we do when, uh, when God chooses not to heal miraculously? How do we walk with people through chronic illness? And how do we say, hey, we celebrate with you that you finally got a medication that helps with your chronic migraines. We celebrate with you. And how do we say we mourn with you as the personal person that you're taking care of is going from, from maybe fighting the disease to palliative care? Like, how do we mark that? I found an incredible ritual that marked that, 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 that helped people when you move into palliative care, the, the author of the article said, either you move to hopelessness or to hope. How wow. do we help people move to hope? We make promises to them. Our family makes promises to them and says, you're not going to be alone. And we're going to walk this journey with you. Uh, how do we help people or how do we just walk with people and not try to solve their problem? So someone as someone living in the great retirement land of Florida, uh, my, I'm forgetting the phrase, which is bugging me because we talk about this all, my husband and I talk about this all the time, but um, there, there are is a lot of language of, I used to be, I used to be a radio talk show host. Well, I mean, podcasting, yeah, sort of kind of similar. My husband used to be a pastor and, you know, he and I are both spiritual directors, but how many times we hear from people, 
well, I used to be, and you hear them say it with a bit of sadness. They've not, they're not moving into anything else. So there's no, there's been nothing ritualized around that ending part, you know, again, it, yeah, they, they lived in a middle space for a lot of years and, and then it just kind of was a muddy middle, maybe nothing, nothing happened and they weren't bad endings even, um, necessarily, but I think about that. I think about this area in Florida where you do have a lot of retirees and, oh, I see how they could really be, um, blessed and challenged by some kind of a ritual like that. Absolutely. And I came, um, I came across some research with regard to retirement in the process of, of looking through the book. And it was basically like, how do, how do we retire well? And we often do have retirement parties, but if you retired in 2020, you didn't get those markers. And so, and you will never have those markers. So you never got to, if you're in my, in my arena, I was talking to some people at Western University, Western Seminary, um, about, okay, you know, you didn't get to do your last lecture. You didn't get to, you didn't get to be honored. You didn't, you didn't get this. And even though they said you're emeritus, it didn't happen in a ritual. Like it was not ritualized, but, um, the author that I read the most of, she said, you know, you end, and then it takes at least two years for you to figure out who you're going to be in retirement. And she doesn't, she, she just did some research. It had nothing to do with ritual, but how do you, how do you ritualize that? And how do you, how do you mark that for people? I think people, well, I think we need markers. I, I, I love that markers because I think it's in the ritualizing that you actually can move someone along their way. I, when she, when you said it takes at least two years, this is me, I'm going, are you kidding me? Probably more like four or five. But I think if it's something that is talked about and you you help people, you ritualize it, you can help move people into that process of, oh, who who am I going to be? What, where, yeah, what am I going to move into now? What will that look like? It can be such a wonderful thing. Oh, I'm, my mind is kind of <laughs> firing on all c- cylinders here. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if for, for people who haven't reached retirement age yet, and even for people who are younger, if we help them understand themselves as outside of their job, um, that that's not the only marker. If we can help them do that ritually, then I think moving into retirement may have a different meaning for them. I agree. And I remember the phrase my husband always says as a joke, but you know, not really, I used to be somebody. (laughs) right? That right there, there you go. We help them realize who they are apart outside of. And I think in, in our society, Western society, we certainly have not done, we are what we do. We, (laughs) right. We have not helped people see themselves outside of that. And so to ritualize that, what, how, what a help that could be. Yeah. And I do think that's something the woman rite of passage has been doing, for these, for these younger women as they're, cause it was the, it was primarily seniors in college. You could do it for seniors graduating from high school, but I had people who were in their thirties and in their forties doing it as well, because they never had it. Well, that's um, this we, is what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. We were just limited in capacity as far yes. as how many students we could, we could, yeah. we could care for, I, I um, told, but yeah. It's like it's it ha- right now because we have a video curriculum. We have the ability to to minister to a huge number of people, to help them understand themselves outside of what they do. Yes. Wow. Um. What What's your favorite part of the book? 
You know, I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, <laughs> I had a friend who asked that in my book launch and I hadn't really thought about it. And, but it's a, it's a part that I've already mentioned. It's, it's the liminal passage, like this in-between area, because I think it's so under-researched and it's so ignored. And I think, I'm like, even if you're saying, okay, I retired, where am I now? who am I now? Well, it's, it's, it's like, you don't, it doesn't seem interesting. Like it is, but it's like, it's, it's not, we don't talk about the challenges. We just want to solve the problem. It's like, okay, you're retired. So now, now we're just going to call you a retiree. Um, you, this happened to you. Slap a label so on it. Let's just, let's right. just throw a label on that. But, um, most of us spend far more time than we would prefer in liminal spaces. Many liminal spaces are unchosen. Like mm. if you're if you're choosing to get married, engagement is very much a liminal space. And if you think about bridezillas, like there's been there's a lot of craziness that happens in that middle space, yeah. and there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of pain because it's a really scary transition. Mm. But at least you know what's next, right. and at least you know the direction you're going in, and mm. you've chosen it, and you choose study. Like study is a liminal space. What about all these unchosen? Like I didn't choose to lose my job. I didn't choose to be single for as long as I was like, what don't solve my problem. Don't, don't solve the problem. It's not, cause it's not that's a problem. Really good. It's a that, place where really God good. has called me to be right now. And how do I do the work and how do you as the church and as my friends and just as myself help me move well in this liminal space. So I don't become stagnant. I'm thinking immediately again in my my context, which I sound like it's all old people here where I live, which is not true. <laughs> there are like five, six, seven, I don't know how many high schools, big high schools there are here. Mm -hmm. Lots of families, lots of young blood, but um uh widows. I mean, I immediately think of widows mm -hmm. who I was and who what am I moving toward or what uh, you know, don't again, don't solve my problem. I'm not a <laughs> Oh, I love that. Um, I came across someone, Pauline Boss. She's a psychologist and she wrote a book. She wrote several different books. She came up with this um, phrase in the 70s, I think, called ambiguous loss. Yes. And she's like, we have right. all of these losses. And so I, we talk about ambiguous loss. We talk about disenfranchised loss. Things like losses that you experience that don't have a funeral, that don't have a body, that don't have anyone in your society acknowledging like your pet dies, but it's the pet that you've had for the last 15 years and has gone through, has moved all of these different places with you. Right. Yes. And so what she, she talks about becoming a widow and her husband, um, if I recall correctly, he died during the time of COVID mm. and she's like, now I'm a widow, but she's like, I'm not, I'm not ready. I loved being a wife so much that it is a real challenge for me to move forward into mm. this widow identity. But I, I, I'm going to embrace it. Um, she talks about learning to tolerate ambiguity uh, mm -hmm. and that tolerating ambiguity is actually very significant for mm -hmm. our living of life and our living of life. Well, and I do think that ritual can help us do that because, yes. because we can mark what is dis, what is not ambiguous. We can mark what is true, what is right, what we understand in the midst of ambiguity. And so mm -hmm. if we can mark some, some, some like stability to hold on to, I have a ritual for liminal times mm -hmm. in the book where I'm like, okay, you know, like things are crazy for you right now. Maybe, um, state to God, what, what, what's troubling you and then put your feet on the ground, actually start with your feet on the ground, you know, spiritual practices, Yes. start yes. with your feet on the ground and now press down. 
And as you're pressing down, look at all of the things that are stable in your life. Maybe it's a relationship that's stable. Maybe it's an income that's stable. Just think about whatever it is that's stable and press down on that. Ask God to, to alleviate your, like, say, and then drink the glass of water. I'm not remembering the full thing, but drink a glass, like put a glass of water in your hand, touch it, like realize how, 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 like, like real it is like it's touchable it's stable it's stable right there drink it thank god for the gift of water not everyone has water and so thank god for that gift of water and sit and pray lord i believe that as you have provided for me clean water for me to drink that you will provide whatever it is that i need in the midst of my in the midst of this ambiguity mm. i love that what do you hope people will take away from your book, if someone grabs meaning in the moment, what do you hope they walk away with? Well, I guess it depends on who's reading it. I want the average person to sit and say, wow, this is really cool. Let me do something with some of my friends, or maybe just let me do something for myself. Cause a lot of the, I have description of my personal rituals in the book that help me, or maybe, or just recognize that they are ritualized people. Mm. And, you know, maybe you have this morning ritual of, of, of like putting on your makeup or whatever it is that, that people might do, shaving your face, whatever people do in the morning. Um, I'm not talking about stuff that doesn't have deeper meaning. I'm talking about what has deeper meaning. And in when you eat dinner, whether you eat it alone or whether you eat it with, with your family or with a group of people, like how do you ritualize that? And how do you understand that you have this opportunity to make meaning mm-hmm. um, and making, you can make that meaning by doing a one-time ritual, by doing something that is continuous, like, like to just say, Hey, there's this richness that's available to you. Go ahead and grab onto it. But mm. I would love for people who are leaders, particularly Christian leaders, whether um, whether a lay leader, whether just someone who who leads a family, um, and then and then also ministers to say, "Wow, how do I how do I pastor myself, and how do I pastor my people through ritual? How do I recognize and give them the opportunity to no longer be silent, but to name." and mark and and look at it as as part of their spiritual formation uh how can how can we help form people into the likeness of christ through ritual and and take some action i would love like i write about my dreams in the book and i my dream is that there's a church down on this side of of the of of the of the street in an urban place and they're known for miscarriage rituals. And they're known that they are the people who pastor people through miscarriage. And so whether you're Christian or whether you're not, you have a miscarriage and you want to mark it by ritual, you go to that church because you know that that's church. Mm. This other church down, down over here does divorce rituals. This other church helps you if you're in chronic illness. This other church does this because these are all common human elements. Like they're part of our life's journey. And what I want us to do is to say, yeah, God's story is incredibly significant and we worship God and, and, and we tell God's story, but God in becoming human has made our human story also holy and incredibly significant. And we worship in the midst of all of the events of our human story. How do we, how do we help people do this? I want to shout, preach, <laughs> listen to you. <laughs> that is great. Oh, good stuff. What a delightful conversation. Amy Davis Abdallah, 
Her book, Meaning in the Moment, How Rituals Help Us Move Through Joy, Pain, and Everything in Between. I highly recommend it, and I'll have information on the show notes um, if you're not somewhere where you can write this all down right now. Amy, thank you so much for your good work with this book and for your time talking with us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Anita. It's been great to talk with you. And to everyone else, I say keep the conversation going. <laughs>